Well, let's stop and, and pray here for a minute and then we'll get into the, the Word again. Father, we do pray for Daniel and Nicole and we pray for Haiti Lifeline. We pray also, Lord, uh, for the churches, uh, for the people that belong to Your bride in Haiti today or that are calling on You just as we do. And Father, would You enlarge their feet under them? Would You enlarge their work? Would You fully provide for all the things You mean them to be a part of? Uh, Father, that You've given us good works to walk in. And I pray that Daniel and Nicole, that the churches, that the orphanage sees You in every phase, Lord. And, and as they've talked about, Lord, the devil is in the details and the enemy of our souls and Your work opposes us. And we pray that your holy angels would do battle. We pray that your people would be on their knees here and there, Lord, beseeching you uh, to oppose his work. Father, thanks that the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church that Jesus builds. And we simply want to be a part of that. Father, we pray too for the Topeka Rescue Mission, the, the hands of faith here in Topeka. We pray for our partners there that you'd continue to fully fund them also as they serve those in need in Topeka. Uh, we appreciate them, Lord, and thank you for all that they do. And Lord, as we spend some time now in your word, uh, we do trust, we entrust ourselves to your care and to your spirit to show us the things you mean each one of us to have. In Jesus' name, amen. Daniel mentioned uh, that Jesus is throughout the Bible. That's certainly true, and that's been the, the theme of the series we've been in called On the Road. If you've been with us for the last couple months or so, we started by remembering a walk Jesus had with a couple disciples on the road to Emmaus from Jerusalem. That was the afternoon of His resurrection. And it said, beginning with Moses, He took them through the Old Testament and He showed them Himself. And so we've sort of in spirit joined them on that walk to go back through Genesis. And we're looking just in the book of Genesis alone at 12 ways in which we see Jesus in those Old Testament texts and events and people. And that's what God always meant us to see. These aren't accidents. And we've said that the fruit of this study is that we want to see Christ as God the Father means for us to see Him. We want to delight in Jesus the way His Father does because if we love Him the way He can be and should be loved, our hearts are raised, we're changed. We're not religious people following religious rules but we are Christians following a Savior. It changes our motivation the more fully we can see Christ. So we've looked at Jesus in a number of different lenses. So we looked at Him in the creation account as Creator. We looked at Him through the lens of Adam, that Jesus is the second Adam. We saw Him in Genesis 3.15. He was the seed of the woman that would crush the serpent's head. We've seen Him in the story of the flood of Noah's era that Jesus was like the ark and only those who were in the ark were able to get safely to the new land. We've seen Him as the seed of Abraham. And this morning, we're going to look in Genesis 14, Psalm 110, and then Hebrews scattered a little bit because God very intentionally gives us another lens by which to see Jesus in Genesis 14. And this is one of the strangest, most enigmatic characters in all the Bible, this character that we'll look at this morning called Melchizedek. And to bring you up to speed, we're still in the story in the life of Abraham. And, and so at this stage in his life, you remember Abraham had come with Lot, his nephew, to 
they'd grown so numerous in their servants and their flocks that the land couldn't sustain them together. So Lot had chosen the well-watered plains of the Jordan. And he'd moved down there. And Abraham had continued to wander. Well, when Genesis 14 comes along, there were four kings in the east, basically modern-day Mesopotamia or Iraq, Iran, up in the northeast part of what we would call the Fertile Crescent. And those kings had subjugated five kings in the Jordan Valley. And those four kings from the east were led by Keterleomer. And they had come up the Fertile Crescent and down south through the modern land of Israel. And they were wreaking havoc as they went. They were defeating every city-state along the way. And they were taking captives and loot back with them. And so as they came back north, they went through the area of Sodom. And they defeated the five kings of the city-states around Sodom. They defeated them. And they carried Lot and Lot's family along with everyone and everything else back north, headed back home to the east. And that's where we pick up here. Now, Abram hears that Lot has been taken captive. And so he pulls together the adult, able-bodied men in his household, and he gets three of his friends and a few of their servants and friends, about 300 people, and he heads north. And they catch up with those kings from the east. They attack them by night, and they defeat them. And they come back with all the loot and all the captives, Lot and his family included. This is Genesis 14, starting at verse 17. It says, After his return, Abram's return from the defeat of Keterleomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was king of Salem, excuse me, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. He, Melchizedek, blessed him, Abram, and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tenth of all. Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all. Now this guy comes onto the pages of Scripture briefly, suddenly here, like a starburst. And then he's gone for about a thousand years. But listen to some of the things that we know about Melchizedek. By the way, the book of Hebrews, where we'll land, it unwraps all this for us. We're not guessing at this stuff. When you get to Hebrews, it unwraps Melchizedek for us if we didn't know what to make of it before. Just based on his name, Melchizedek is made of two Hebrew words, Melech, which means king, and Zedek, which means righteous. So his very name means he's the king of righteousness. But he's also the king of a city called Salem. Now, most commentators and scholars believe this Salem is Jerusalem. Jerusalem's name also is made up of two roots. But Salem means peace. It's the same Hebrew word that we get the word shalom from. So he's the king of righteousness and he's the king of peace. Now, the text here says that he is a priest king in the city of Jerusalem. And this is a little bit unusual. We'll talk about that again in a minute from Psalm 110. But he comes out and he blesses Abram. And Abram responds by tithing some of the booty that they've come up with to Melchizedek. Now Hebrews will tell us this is significant later, isn't it? Because it was clear in this time that the person of greater stature or importance was the one who would pronounce a blessing 
on the lesser figure. So when you read the stories of the patriarchs, it was the father who would bless his son. The greater blessed the lesser. Not only that, but the greater one was the one who had received a gift. So when Abram blessed Melchizedek with a tenth or a tithe, he was acknowledging that Melchizedek was his superior. And when Melchizedek pronounced a blessing on Abraham, he understood that in God's economy, he was the greater over Abram. Now this is strange, isn't it? Because Abram's the hero of our story. And he's the guy that, call, that God called from Ur and brought up, I'm going to give you all the land, these are my promises to you, and he gives him promise after promise after promise. And here comes Melchizedek, and suddenly this guy out of nowhere is more important than Abram. What is with that? Some people wonder if they even worship the same God, and it's because we know Abram's in a faith relationship with God, but we're not sure about this guy. Because isn't Abram in a land populated by people who don't believe in Yahweh, the living and true God? And that's true. That's a great question. When Melchizedek blesses, he blesses in the name of God Most High. El El Yon. And so we might think, maybe El El Yon's not Yahweh. But when Abram responds in verse 22, Abram says, I have sworn to Yahweh El El Yon. I have sworn to my God, who you call God Most High. They are one and the same. There's absolutely no doubt about that. That Melchizedek and Abram worship the same God. And Abram believes that Melchizedek is his superior. So this is a very strange person. Comes out of the woodwork and goes right back into obscurity for about a thousand years. Abram's around 2000 B.C. But about a thousand years later, King David sitting in Jerusalem. Maybe he'd been reading this text. Uh, D.A. Carson's done a teaching on this. It's available online at Gospel Coalition. If you go to their website, it takes a little over an hour. We're cramming quite a bit in here this morning uh, to develop this theme. But about a thousand years later, King David is the king in Jerusalem, this same city. But he's not a priest. And you remember that trying to combine the priesthood with the kingship in Israel, did you know that was problematic? So David had seen what happened when a king in Israel tried to take on the duties of a priest. So if you remember in the story of Saul, right in the early days of his kingship, he goes and he has a military victory. God gives him a military victory. And he's waiting for Samuel to come. Samuel the priest is going to offer offerings of thanksgiving to God. Well, he doesn't come. And he doesn't come. And Saul thinks, everybody's drifting away from me. I'm going to lose power and authority here. I better do something. So he steps in and he offers offerings to God himself. He's not a priest. He has no authority to do so. And so when Samuel finally arrives, he said, you've done a very foolish thing. And God will not bless that. In fact, He's going to take the kingdom from you. You would have had an enduring kingdom, but no longer because you took to yourself a prerogative and authority God didn't give you. That was Saul. And David knew Saul, of course. David grew up under Saul. And he saw what happened when a Jewish king tried to take on the priestly office. It did not end well. Matter of fact, you can look down at one of David's descendants, Azariah, in 2 Kings 15. Azariah does exactly what Saul does. Azariah should have known better. 
But he went into the temple to offer incense up and the priests are in there saying, what are you doing? Get out of here. You're not authorized to be here. God has reserved this for priests. And as they speak to him, God strikes him with leprosy. Don't do this. God says, I made you king. I did not make you a priest. So David knew that in Israel you don't combine the kingship with the priesthood because the very covenant God had made with Israel at Sinai said the priests come from Levi. The kings will come from whatever noble line God would install. But the law made it very clear they are distinct, they are separate, they are not the same. So isn't it interesting that in David's tenure as king, David writes Scripture in Psalm 110, this is what he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And just pause briefly, your text where it says the Lord the first time is probably in all caps. And so that means this is the proper name for God. So if we were reading the Hebrew, Yahweh says to my king. God says to my king. Now David's the king, so he's not referring to himself. And we understand prophetically David is referring to the one he knew God would give him, a descendant that would rule over God's kingdom forever. So if we look at passages like Psalm 2, we say that's a messianic psalm. That's talking about God installing His king as opposed to anyone else. Or if you look at second, uh, let's see, Second Samuel, I believe it's chapter seven. Uh, David says, "I have this idea. Uh, God's God's ark is in a tent, and God should have a glorious house, and I want to build God a house." And and so initially, the prophet says, "That's a good idea, David." But God speaks to the prophet, and he comes back, and he says, "This is the deal, David. That's a nice idea, but how about this instead? Instead of you building me a house, I'll build you a house." And I'll set one of your sons over my house, over my kingdom forever. That's my plan instead. So David knows about the kingdom. And he knows about being a king. And yet here, when he's writing about Yahweh's king, his descendant who would be the king who would reign forever, he's going to end up bringing in the theme of a priest, which is so strange. So Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion. He will say, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. This king, this descendant of David, will have power and everyone will be glad to serve him. That sounds good and that's typical of the Old Testament promises to David and his descendant. But all of a sudden he throws this curve in at verse 4. The Lord, Yahweh, has sworn He will not change His mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Here's Melchizedek again. A thousand years later. And David prophetically says, the Messiah, the heir God has promised me, will not only be a king, He will also be a priest. And in this same city I reign in today that Melchizedek a thousand years earlier used to reign in, my descendant will be like Melchizedek. He won't just be a king, he will also be a priest. He'll be just like him. Same city. My descendant, priest and king. Now this is really interesting, and Hebrews unpacks this again. When we get to Hebrews, we'll just we'll touch on these topics. 
you know, with hindsight as Christians, with the Spirit and Jesus coming and the New Testament, we look back and we say, oh, now we see that. But check this out. You know, if you read Jeremiah 31, it's a well-known text, and Jeremiah is around 600 B.C. And Jeremiah lives through the captivity when Babylon comes and captures Jerusalem. And part of Jeremiah's prophecy was to say this in Jeremiah 31, God says, I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel. It won't be like the old one. It won't be written on stone tablets. No, but I'll write my law in their hearts. So Jeremiah 31, a new covenant. Well, guess what Hebrews says? Israel knew a new covenant was coming when David penned Psalm 110. Because when David said, the king will also be a priest it meant there had to be a new covenant or the king could not be the priest. Hebrews unpacks that for us. 400 years before Jeremiah says God's going to make a new covenant, we should have known it was coming. Because when David says he'll be like Melchizedek, he'll be king and priest, that's the institution of a new covenant. Because there's a new priesthood. It's huge. And David's heir, not only will he be the king like David, but he'll also be a priest like Melchizedek. We'll turn to Hebrews if you want, sort of for the balance of our time. And, and I confess there's not going to be a single text that we'll, we'll look at in, in Hebrews because this is all over the place. I will start by saying this. The theme of priesthood is woven throughout Hebrews. It starts in the end of chapter 2. It picks up again at the end of chapter 4. And from chapter 6 at the end, I think it's verse 19 through 10:25 the theme of priesthood just keeps coming over and over and over again. So when we get to Hebrews looking back on Jesus, the author of the Hebrews wants Jewish believers who are tempted to go back to Judaism, he wants them to know there's nothing for you to go back to. Jesus is the substance of everything in Judaism that were mere shadows. And so if you going back, if you go back, you're simply going back to inconsequential, insubstantial things. Jesus is the ultimate reality. If you look at a verse like Hebrews 8, 6, it puts it this way: He has obtained a more excellent ministry. He's the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. That's sort of the theme. Jesus is better than anything and everyone else. Well, the writers want, the writer of Hebrews wants all these. Jewish believers to know that Jesus is superior as a priest to anything available under Judaism. So, Jesus' priesthood in the line of Melchizedek is compared to the priesthood and the offerings that you could have under the Jewish system. And Hebrews tells us Jesus is better in every way possible than any priest or any offering under the Old Testament covenant. Anything that they could go back to Judaism in this day and still get. He says this in a number of ways. In chapter 7, he says that Jesus is better as a priest because Melchizedek was better than Abraham. So that if Jesus has a priesthood that likes Melchizedek, that means he's greater than anything Abraham could produce. So back in Genesis 14 when it said Melchizedek blessed Abram, that was theologically significant. And that Abram tithed to Melchizedek. Hebrews says this means it's quite clear. Melchizedek is the greater. Abraham is the lesser. 
Abraham will not be able to produce an heir that's greater than Melchizedek. This is Jesus' aside. Jesus is the key heir, of course. But Abram won't be able to produce a priesthood through his lineage that will be greater than Melchizedek because the sons of the fathers cannot be greater than the father. So he says to start with, because Melchizedek is greater than Abram, Abram's heirs, the Levitical priesthood, they can't be greater than Jesus, who has a Melchizedekian, if we can say it that way, priesthood. But he also says this. He said, you know, every one of those Levitical priests, they all die. If Bart is my priest and and I bring my sacrifice to Bart and Bart sacrifices for me, if Bart dies, I'm in trouble. Because the guy that's going to produce the atoning sacrifice for me is gone. And so Bart's got to have somebody else come behind him, doesn't he? He's got to have his son step in. So Hebrews says, you know, there's a problem with the Levitical priesthood because these guys die. And then they've got to be replaced. And so one generation after another has to replace each other because their priesthood doesn't, doesn't continue. Each one of those generations dies. But he says in contrast to that, like Melchizedek, Jesus lives forever. He never dies. By the way, just related to Melchizedek, some people say, is he Jesus? Is he a pre-incarnate version of Jesus? Unlikely for a couple of reasons. But, but the thought is, when we see Melchizedek, we're not told who his father is. We're not told that he dies. And so at least as a picture, Hebrews picks up on that theme as David did in Psalm 110 and says, Melchizedek, it's as if his priesthood goes on forever. And that's what Jesus' priesthood is like, Hebrews tells us. In that same way, he never dies, so his priesthood never ends. He's always available to intercede for you. Levites also, Hebrews tells us, keeps offering sacrifices. This is in chapter 10, verses 1-4. through This is a big deal. I grew up as a Roman Catholic. Most of you know that. And you know, every time you go to a Roman Catholic Mass, you're going to a sacrifice. Phil's nodding his head. It's the sacrifice of the Mass. They're offering sacrifices today. A priesthood is offering sacrifices today in every Roman Catholic Mass. There's that thought that In Hebrews, if you have to keep making an offering, it means your sins aren't covered. So Hebrews says, all those offerings that the priests keep offering over and over again, it means sin isn't covered. Because if one sacrifice had been given that was adequate, the sacrifices would be over. So Hebrews tells us, Jesus offered Himself once for all time. And that's why He can offer you and I a perfect atoning sacrifice and a guarantee of eternal life because His sacrifice once for all was adequate. Our sins are covered. But if you keep offering sacrifice, that means the sins are not yet covered. Also it says in chapter 7, verse 20-22, to Jesus is a priest by God's oath. You know we serve a God who can't lie. If God tells you something, it's the truth. It can't be otherwise. He is the truth. Daniel mentioned earlier. I'm the way, the truth. You can't get lies out of the truth, out of God. So if God tells us something, it's true, we can count on it. But if a God who can't lie also swears by an oath, do you think He wants us to take that seriously? He can't lie in the first place. If He says it, it's true. But then to emphasize, He gives it an oath. It's by God's oath, Psalm 110 says, that His heir, Jesus, will be a priest like Melchizedek. So in the Levitical system, If I'm in the priestly line, I just take over after dad. It's dad's business, so to speak. 
But of this singular person, God says, by my oath, he's a priest. And he's not a priest once, he's a priest forever. He's greater. And then last, in chapter 9, verses 11 through 12, Hebrews says that Jesus as a priest, he didn't enter the Holy of Holies on earth. You guys know that, that anything on earth, it's a picture of what's the ultimate reality in heaven. So you'll see this throughout uh, Hebrews especially, but you'll see it elsewhere in the New Testament, that Moses made the tent and the ark based on models, based on the originals in heaven. And this says of Jesus that in contrast to the high priest who goes into the Holy of Holies, into God's presence once a year, right? He's offered a sacrifice for his own sins. He's offered a sacrifice for the sins of the people. He goes into the holy place. He spreads the curtain. He goes into the Holy of Holies once. Splattering blood on the Ark of the Covenant once. They've got a rope tied to his leg because if he's unholy and God strikes him dead, they're going to pull him out. So his access is once a year and that's a little iffy. Hebrew says of Jesus, Jesus has gone into the presence of God in heaven. All the high priest could do was get in front of the Ark of the Covenant. But Hebrew says, no, Jesus hasn't stayed here on the earth. He's gone into the very Holy of Holies, which means He's in heaven right now, in front of God the Father, on your behalf and mine. So Hebrews is saying, when you're talking about priesthood, there's absolutely no comparison between Jesus, who's like Melchizedek, and any priesthood you could get on earth otherwise. So, Genesis, we see this strange guy, Melchizedek, come into the picture and go out. David picks up that theme in Psalm 110. And then Hebrews unpacks it for us to say, this is what we're supposed to get out of that. Now let me give you a three, so what? This is a lens, very clearly, God wants us to see Christ through Melchizedek. So, so what? So what, Mike? The first so what for me in this is, uh, guys, God is holy and we're not. You know, when you talk about a priesthood, you've assumed a problem. If you're okay with God, you need no priesthood. Okay? If God and you are on the same page, you don't need a priest. A priest is a mediator for people who aren't on the same page. And a priest's role was to represent man to God. And so, in the Levitical priesthood, the priests are bringing the offerings, they're slaying them, they're taking their blood on behalf of the person who's come up. That person can't offer their own sacrifice. The priest has to do it for them. A priesthood means God's holy and we're not, and that's a problem. So the first thing to be aware of, when God talks in the language of priesthood, that means we've got a problem. And you know, in our culture, in our time, it is popular, it is the assumption that God's a nice guy like I'm a nice guy. And that I may have some, some few faults, but God's a nice guy like I'm a nice guy. He would understand that. But when you've got a Bible that talks about a priesthood, God says, I'm holy and you're not. And you cannot just waltz into my presence. God's not a nice guy the way we count nice guys. He's holy. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.5 that there's one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. You know, you talk about John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. This is the same thing in Hebrews and it's the same thing here in 1 Timothy. There's but one means, there's one priest, there's one mediator 
that can present you and I holy and blameless before the holy God, and that's Jesus. It's through Him or it doesn't exist. So the first thing we need to come to grips is God is holy and we're not. And that's why we need a priest. Now there's a passage in uh, Hebrews 4 that I like and I quote and I pray often. Hebrews 4, uh, 14 through 16. There at verse 16 it says, Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I love that. That's an invitation by God that there's nothing to hold us back. Come boldly into my presence. You, you talk to me about what you need. I'm here. But guys, you can't forget the verses that precede it. Verse 14, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens for us. The reason we can be invited boldly into God's presence is because Christ has already gone ahead for us. He's covered the mercy seat, as it were, with His blood, and so the way is open for us. You know, we often talk about sonship, which is the big deal for us as Christians. We're co-heirs with Christ. But guys, all of that presupposes the mediating influence of Jesus as a priest for us. Offering Himself, His bloody sacrifice on the cross to cover our sins. So the first thing is, God is holy and we're not. Last point on that for me is this, or two points, sorry. I've always got more to say. There's, it just always goes that way. You know, for, for the sake of a guilty conscience, we, we jump through all kinds of hoops. Um, if my conscience is guilty, I might try to assuage it by abusing sex, drugs, alcohol, myself or others in one way or another because I want to feel better. I know I'm not right. I might not even say it this way to myself, but my conscience bothers me. Hebrews 9.14 says the blood of Jesus is adequate to cleanse our conscience. And friends, nothing else is. So I can jump through all kinds of hoops and I will still have a conscience that bothers me because I know I'm not okay in my honest moments. I'm not okay. Christ's blood will assuage my conscience. God, the holy righteous God says, Christ's blood over your sins is enough. You can be at peace. Then I can be at peace, but short of that I can't. It's the blood of Christ that allows me to be free of the guilt of my own sin. And then last on this, uh, I respect uh, people of other religious faiths, but related to Judaism today, you know if you're a practicing Jew today, you have absolutely no means of having your sins forgiven. None. A practicing Jew today has absolutely no means of having their sins forgiven. Because... It's predicated on the Levitical priesthood. The sins of the nation can't be forgiven. You remember once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur? The sins of the nation brought before God and covered. There's been no sin and no sacrifice since 70 A.D. when Jerusalem was destroyed. If you're a practicing Jew today, there is no means of forgiveness before a holy God because you have no priesthood and you have no sacrifice. And that's the way I just think you can appeal to someone of a Jewish background what do you do with your sins because your covenant with god requires a sin sacrifice and you haven't had one for almost two thousand years that's a lot of sin piling up so the first so what god's holy and we're not and we need a priest we need someone who can adequately represent us before a holy god number two so what is this. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of anything you can look at in the Old Testament. Very briefly, there were three key roles in the Old Testament. There was a prophet, there was a priest, and there was a king. 
And Jesus is the consummate fulfillment of all three of those. Related to the prophet, Moses, who was God's key prophet, said this in Deuteronomy 18, that God is going to send another prophet like me in the future. You need to listen to him. And a prophet, a priest primarily represents man to God through a sacrificial system, but a prophet speaks from God to men. A prophet speaks God's Word. And isn't it great that John's Gospel says Jesus is the Word of God? Or when you start Hebrews 1, it says that in the past God spoke to us through all these various prophets and means and ways, but it says in these last days He has spoken to us in His Son. And it's a way of saying Jesus is the final word, revelation, prophetic utterance of God the Father to the earth is His Son. So the prophets end, as it were, in Jesus. He's the ultimate word from God, the ultimate word of God. Jesus is the prophet from God. He's also the priest, as we're talking about here, from Melchizedek and Psalms and Hebrews. Jesus is the ultimate priest. And we also know He's going to be, He is now, He's seated at the right hand of the Father now in heaven. But Psalm, Revelation 19 talks about when Jesus gets ready to come back to the earth. Remember, it's written on His side. He is the King of kings. And He's the Lord of lords. So, Jesus is the final and He's the consummate revelation and expression and fulfillment of all the types and promises and shadows that God meant us always to point us to Christ and see in Christ. If you've got a prophecy or a prophet that's antagonistic or speaks against Jesus, His person or His work, I can tell you that's a false prophet. Jesus is God's final Word. He's the prophet, He's the priest, and the King. He sums up in Himself in Ephesians 1.10, it says that the Father always intended to sum up all things in His Son Jesus. This is kind of like a drumbeat message, isn't it? If you get Jesus, you get it all. If you miss Jesus, you've missed it all. The last is this, so what? You go back to Genesis 14.20 for just a minute. And in a week in which we're going to celebrate Thanksgiving here coming up, a national holiday and a great time for Christians or anyone to simply recognize the way God has blessed us. Look at what Melchizedek said in 14 verse 20 there in Genesis. Blessed be God most high who delivered your enemies into your hand. Who delivered the enemy into Abram's hand? Melchizedek says, God did. Now listen for just a second to the elements of this story. So four kings of at least city-states from the east have defeated five city-state kings and everybody they've, they've come through, they've whooped. Coming down through the land of promise. They beat them all. So Abram gets this little army of a little over 300 guys together going up against a much superior force. So an army of about 300 going up against a much superior force and they take the battle to them at night and they win... And they bring back all the spoils. Do those story points, do those sound familiar to anyone else in here? Okay, so if you go to the book of Judges and you look at the life of Gideon, how big is his army? 300. When does the battle occur? At night. Why is his army 300? Do you remember? Because he starts out with thousands. God whittles that down. Whittles it down again. Why 300? Do you remember? Because God says this. I'm going to make it so that you know that I'm the one that delivered the Midianites into your hand. The odds are going to be so ridiculous that you'll know we couldn't have done this. This is the same storyline. 
It's exactly the same. And Melchizedek spells it out. God gave you the victory. And friends, you know, we are so blessed in the United States. We got so much stuff, don't we? We got food. The poorest of us has household, roof, food, covering. You know, if you got food and covering, the Scripture says be content. We've got it all. I just want to say, be on record as saying, this is not because we're smarter than the rest of the world. It's not because we work harder. Though Americans tend to work hard. You see where this goes? God has chosen to pour His blessings on us. That's the deal. God has providentially, sovereignly chosen to do that. And from the pilgrim fathers that came over and said, God, we want to make a city on a hill. And we recognize our blessings come from You. That's our start. But they recognize it's God. And in the book of Daniel, it says this three times, it's God who rules in the affairs of men. It's God who establishes those who rule over nations. And it's God who sets the boundaries of nations. So this Thanksgiving, I just think it does us good to humbly sit down again and remind ourselves, God, You are great and You are good and You've chosen to bless us. And it's not because we're so smart and it's not because we're so good and it's not because we work so hard, though some of that stuff's helpful. It's because God has chosen to reach down and to bless. So this Thanksgiving week, so what? God, thank You for what You've given. Listen, ultimately in Christ, we're all going to die. Did you know that? Unless the rapture happens first, we're all going to die. And a lifetime of a hundred years or a thousand years here will be meaningless. And all the good stuff we enjoy be like a snap of the finger. If we have Jesus, we have everything that matters. Prophet, priest, and king. We've got the revelation of God to man. We've got an atoning sacrifice. We have a representative in heaven who's overseeing things for your good and mine right now. We have a benevolent God who says, I'm just going to bless you with this stuff because I choose to. But that's all in Christ. Father, would You help us to see the blessing You intend for us in Your Son? God, would You help... uh, Remove from our minds the mistaken notion that somehow we can be great by our own effort, but that, Lord, we simply, humbly thank You for Your benevolent goodness poured out on us ultimately in the person of Your Son. Father, for anyone here that doesn't know Jesus now, I just pray that Your Spirit would bring home the truth that Jesus is all they need. And Lord, I just pray that they'd feel welcomed into Your arms, Your family, and Your home today. Father, for those of us who know You, would You help us to give You heart-filled praise both this morning in worship collectively and in our homes and households this week as we thank you again for the greatest gift of all for Jesus your son in his name for his sake father amen